0: Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Joanna LaFleur-Ejiki, the Executive Director of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation. In the show, LaFleur-Ejiki talks about the lasting legacy and relevance of Malcolm X, who was born in Omaha in 1925, and his recent induction into the Nebraska Hall of Fame. LaFleur Echiki will also talk about the work of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation and share more about her own life as a self-declared Black history nerd and a proud daughter of North Omaha.
1: I still learn things every day, not just about his life, but also about the Black experience in Omaha. So people really need to know that we don't have only tragic history. I think it's my role to... Empower people along the way to talk about the good stuff too.
0: Joanna LaFleur Ejiki is a young cultural activist raised in the Midwest and a proud daughter of North Omaha, activating her community through the cultivation of creative entrepreneurs and arts based programming. For many years, LaFleur Ejiki has prioritized cultural awareness and unification in collaboration with several local nonprofits including Film Streams, Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts, Carver Bank, The Greater Omar Chamber, The Reader Magazine, and Three Wars in Chicago. She continues this mission in her recently accepted position as the Executive Director for the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation after having volunteered there for 10 years. LaFleur Ijiki lives in North Omaha with a husband and new daughter. Joanna LaFleur Ijiki, welcome to Lives.
1: Hey, thanks for inviting me.
0: I was really struck by that phrase, daughter of North Omaha. And my understanding is that your family is actually quite well known in terms of its uh, community commitment and entrepreneurial commitment to the community at large. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about your family context.
1: Yes. So my maiden name, LaFleur, is my family is speaking of. And on on my father's side, we have a couple of business owners and The primary one named his uh, storefront, LaFleur's, on North 24th Street, Um, and he's been there for, oh, I can't even recall, I want to say 15 plus years maybe now. But he sells, you know, suits and casual wear for men and now recently adding women's clothes too. I've had that sort of example of business ownership, entrepreneurial endeavors for a long time and even worked there for a summer when I was in uh, freshman year in college, I think. <laughs> and so uh, I think everybody in my family is offered the opportunity to work there if they want. But I knew that retail was not my calling. <laughs> so I just worked there for that little period of time. And we also have an aunt in Chicago who does the same thing. And uh, their stores are Huge. And so I worked there as well in high school for a summer, uh, which was fun. You know, it was a good experience to be in in Chicago when you're like 18, (laughs) 17, 18. (laughs)
0: You've described yourself as a black history nerd. And that's something that you realized, I think, when you were quite young. So, how did that show up for you? What what qualifies that you would self-describe as this Black history nerd?
1: Yes, uh, I am very proud to call myself that, <laughs> mainly because uh, I was supported in that growing up. You know, my mom had a nice library of Black authors and that was my gateway for a lot of things. Um, I do remember the first time I grabbed a poetry compilation by Maya Angelou, That was early childhood, actually, for that. But I remember a little bit later in college reading Lorraine Hansberry's Raising in the Sun, and that was uh, pretty life-changing for me. But it did start early. When I was eight years old, I saw Roots for the first time at a summer camp. And then fast forward to middle school, 100 Black Men of Omaha hosts in collaboration with a number of chapters across the country, they host the African-American History Challenge. And so I signed up. (laughs) Uh, Essentially what that is, is like a Jeopardy style presentation. And the students are at each uh, local school. They have a coach. So it's just like the history teacher coaches the students. You get a a rubric syllabus. You know, you get a reading list. You get a, a list of questions to practice. And there are two rounds. One is the citywide round where you compete with other schools. And then if you win, you go to nationals. So when I was 12 years old, I was at Beverage Magnet School and we won and we went to nationals and we competed again. And that year I was in Orlando, Florida. And so you get like a scholarship or a, a book stipend for your time. I think at that time I got a savings bond. But I do remember my mom being and my dad being really proud of me for being such a nerd. And <laughs> then, you know, I found out later, like, oh, I can study this or I could do more with this. So, you know, I took a African-American history class at Central High School where I went. Um, Mr. Mullen was the teacher there, Rod Mullen. And then after that, uh, in college, I, I really dove in all the kind of classes you could possibly take. I didn't have time to be a full major in black studies. But I did minor. And so that was when I read Lorraine Hansberry's book. That was when I uh, started watching a lot of black film. Um, That was also when I learned about the Black Panthers uh, and the movement that they led. I also learned about local activists, too. And I've had a lot of different experiences in between there, but uh, it really summarized uh, everything that I think that I should be doing with my life. So, you know, you don't just absorb knowledge just to have it, you know, you have to do something with it. So that's why I tout that title.
0: <laughs> I get a sense that this cultural and literature based environment that you were raised in was really informative and, and really sparked this sense of who you are, this, this sense of um, your own personal interest as a, as a black history and culture nerd. And it feels as if a part of that has manifested in your later career too as someone who specializes in journalism and and public relations and that sort of thing. So how important and how influential for you was this idea of black literature, the spoken and written word as a representation of how we might think about celebrating black culture and history?
1: Yeah, I think a lot about the Harlem Renaissance. That was a period where we were celebrating ourselves regardless of who was listening or watching. And that's not the only renaissance that black people experienced, but it's the one that's most documented as far as I can recall, Uh, because you didn't have to have a badge of any kind or a a certification to do it. You know, everybody just jumped in. And so for me, it was so much to absorb and I was never dissatisfied. Um, I was always filled with something like, oh, Sun Ra, what kind of poet is that? You know, (laughs) and I just remember being so uh, enthralled by Sun Ra. And also, I didn't know this at the time, but Afrofuturism was a a thing. And also, I I remember reading uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved at a young age. I don't know why I picked Beloved. (laughs) I don't know. But, um, you know, I think about the impact that the arts has had on me in my entire life. And I realized that that's what I should be contributing to later in life, too. So, yeah, like you mentioned, journalism and public relations. And then the the other kind of residual uh, gateways that I learned about in that process was community development and uh, curators. And so I, I always found it important for me to understand those roles too, because those people are also just as much representatives of their communities or the people that they're working with. Um, and I find that really important and powerful just as much as uh, a griot might be or a shaman might be in uh, the historical context. So, you know, when I, before I went to college, I was, I was always trying to figure out like, what, what am I supposed to do? you know, I guess everybody's trying to figure out something. Then I started learning, oh, uh, you could be a curator or you could be a, an archivist or you could be a cultural guide at a museum or, you know. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'm just going to go read some more. <laughs> uh, I remember that feeling of being overwhelmed with, you know, cause, because once, and I think this is specific to Black people, I, I can't speak for everybody else, but... Once an elder in a community witnesses that a young person is curious and excited about who they are, and where they've come from, that person, that young person is automatically in training. They don't know it yet, but they are, they have been identified as the person for the next generation to lead or do something important. So I think I didn't accept that until maybe halfway through college. And so that for me was a turning point, obviously. But yeah, it was early that I got exposed to different things, and grateful. I'm grateful for that. And I also need to need to say, it wasn't just the books that exposed me. Right? It was two more things. So a is my my family on both sides. They have a very strong understanding of their own of, of their identities, um, so that it wasn't hard for us to have conversations about being black in America, about racism, about disenfranchisement, and all the other buzzwords that come along with uh, systemic uh, inequity. But we also, like, enjoyed who we were. You know, you have sports, you have music. Culture was very important to us, and we got together a lot on both sides. Um, So that sense of knowing who who I was or a part of was early because of that. And then the other reason is because uh, I grew up in the church, Baptist and Pentecostal. There's so much more culture <laughs> that goes into that. And I could probably do a separate conversation about growing up in that sort of environment. I do have a couple preachers in my family. They are in the South in, in Arkansas. Um, but I also, I think early on, knew that I did not want to be a preacher. <laughs> and so I kind of gravitated to books because I'm I'm an introvert, really. You know, reading and writing is my jam. So I picked journalism for that reason. And that's that's kind of where I got started.
0: What is the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation? What is its mission and, and what are its typical activities?
1: So our mission at the Malcolm X Foundation is Simply, well, sometimes simple, <laughs> to preserve the legacy of Malcolm X as a human rights uh, activist, number one, and also to preserve the birth site of where he was born. And that's not our formal mission statement. Uh, however, that is the, the uh, practical explanation because there's so much work that can be done uh, around that concept of who Malcolm X was. So, we focus more so on education uh, about his legacy because not a lot of people do know that he was born in Omaha. And so, we do a number of educational efforts around that. You know, you can get a tour at the Malcolm X Center, um, and that has a lot of uh, Black history wrapped up into it. So, it's not just about Malcolm X. And we also do private workshops around the same thing. Um, And then, we also are civically minded. And if we are required to uh, advocate for certain things because there's a certain need in the community, that is what we we then garner all of our efforts towards. Um, but of course, there's a cultural ambiance that we like to provide in our events. And it's really important for Black people, especially, to feel invited to participate in those things.
0: So the date that we should start with is... February 21st, 1965.
1: That's his death date. We oh, I'm sorry. No, yeah.
0: yeah, it's May.
1: Yeah, May 19th.
0: Sorry, I read the wrong date. Yeah, okay. May 19th. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the date. Yeah, May 19th, yeah. 1925.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because uh, my husband's birthday is May 15th. And uh, once I officially committed to him, <laughs> I realized, oh, that's going to be a busy week for me for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, uh, May 19th, Malcolm X was born here in Omaha. And every year in Omaha, at least since nineteen oh, about sixty eight, we have celebrated his birth in Omaha. And when I say we, I mean the, the greater community. I did some research this year on what did happen in previous birthday celebrations. And the Omaha Star had a number of archives that I retracted and uh, put on the wall on display at the Malcolm X Center, because I thought it was important for people to see the old headlines and see how things progress over the years. And so I started it with 1968 all the way through 2011. And I found out that Omaha really does appreciate that he was born here, especially in the past. And we have to get back to that. You know, we have to not only necessarily just celebrate him, but celebrate the amount of leadership that was activated from his life. I want to get back to his life, mm-hmm. but
0: I also want to get back to that immediate period after his assassination and when the foundation itself was founded mm-hmm. in order to celebrate this fact that this sort of globally iconic figure was born in this city. Mm-hmm. So how did the foundation then come about?
1: Great question and in 1971 is when it came to be. Uh, through the founder, Rowena Moore. So she was a local labor rights activist in Omaha. When she resided here, she campaigned and motivated uh, young Black women uh, to get jobs at the packing plants. And she was about 14 or 15 when she got her first job there. She also started her activism Young in Life. And she found out later, she became a, a local historian in her own way throughout her life. And She was also the first black woman to run for city council. Um, but after she did all these awesome things, it was later in her life that she found out Malcolm X's home address because the autobiography had just been printed. And a relative of hers, she read the autobiography and called Rowena and told her, hey, this was, this was our address. Uh, our, our grandpa lived here. And as soon as Rowena found that out, she investigated how to either go save the house and eventually it was torn down. So she still preserved the birth site by uh, getting the first nine acres. And she also worked with Malcolm's oldest of six daughters, Atala, to fundraise. Uh, and Atala went back to New York and fundraise, and they, they bought those nine acres. And so it was then that we were able to look back and say, oh, Rowena did something very important, you know, and she wasn't even necessarily a Malcolm X fan at the time. She just knew that he was important. Um, So that's what we talk about when people get a tour. And um, we have to talk about a lot of the activism and the culture that existed already in North Omaha, uh, even before Malcolm X was born. Um, so we, we circle around the, the uh, timeline a lot. You know, of course, we talk about Malcolm X being born in Omaha, but we also talk about the early 1900s. Uh, we also talk about Rowena Morris Day. And of course, present day, we're building our story still.
0: What is it that we should perhaps know about uh, Malcolm X connection with the city that we should be marking and recognizing and celebrating?
1: That's a good question. And when you added that celebration word at the end, I kind of had to rethink what I thought I was going to say. Because honestly, when Malcolm was born here, there was a lot of tension in the black community. But what was being, I'll start with this. What was being celebrated was the fact that Omaha had a very thriving black community. You know, we had 24th street and 16th street, you know, we were occupying businesses uh, we were uh, running our own organizations. We had a very popular jazz circuit, so we were a city that everybody wanted to stop stop by, <laughs> or drive through—not drive through, but stop. Um, so, Malcolm's parents were invited to Omaha for two reasons: one, jobs were here, uh, packing plants, etc. But number two. Uh, His parents were invited here to start a chapter of the UNIA, which is the Universal Negro Improvement Association founded by Marcus Garvey. And so that organization is uh, focused on self-reliance, pan-Africanism, and if need be, feeling empowered to return to Africa. And so if you can imagine somebody who might be a leader of the KKK finding out that this black family moved here and they are encouraging black people to be self-sufficient, of course they might be targeted, right? And uh, Earl Little was actually a minister uh, by, by trade or uh, acquaintance. So he, he was already an orator or a, a community person. And Louise, Malcolm's mother, was also a writer. So she was educated. These are the people that raised Malcolm And later in Malcolm's life, he had more influences, uh, including his sister, Ella Collins, who was a part of the first set of siblings he had from his mother's first marriage. Without going all the way down Malcolm's lifetime, because I am still a student also, uh, I still learn things every day, not just about his life, but also about the Black experience in Omaha. So people really need to know that we don't have only tragic history. I think it's my role to empower people along the way to talk about the good stuff too.
0: Malcolm X had a short life. He didn't reach 40 years of age. 39, yeah. So much of what gets talked about is really in the latter years of his life when he was going through all sorts of shifts in perspectives on his own experiences in the world. And so what are perhaps some of those lessons that we should draw from his life and his teachings? And we can also touch on some of the perhaps um, misinformed or controversial elements as well. Uh, What would you want to start with? Controversial or should we start
1: with? I think the noble moments of transformation are notable simply because there's so much propaganda about only one period of Malcolm's life. Malcolm X was not the only person who was subject to that kind of propaganda. The notable moments for me when I learned about Malcolm's life were every single time he allowed himself to transform. It takes a lot of courage to humble yourself and think about what you could change or do better and then subject yourself to a new way of life. And he did that about four or five times, (laughs) You know, so you have to be really forgiving of yourself if you think about that to allow that to even happen. And so I think that's, for me, what sticks out the most. And I say about four or five times because there are name changes that are associated with those shifts. You know, he's born Malcolm Little and he goes through a tragic period of being uh, separated. And that's the polite way of saying separated from his family. And then he is uh, introduced to the street life, and it embraces him as well when he was in the Boston area, and so he became Detroit Red to a lot of people. And so here again is the second transformation, a more of a coming-of-age period of his life. And then when he was in prison, he began to learn about the Nation of Islam. So his older brother, Wilfred, was already in the nation, and so he was visiting him and talking to him about it. And then when he left prison, uh, he decided to join, and then he became Malcolm X. And a lot of people, I think, make assumptions about the X, but it's kind of simple. If you think about it, uh, he became Malcolm X because the X stands for unknown. I do not know where my original ancestors came from. I do not know who this little person is. You know, we know that it's a a name carried down from a, a slave owner. More than likely that is the period that is highlighted the most in media because he was a prominent figure in the nation of Islam. And so the media was present. But what if the media was present more so in his childhood or his coming of age years? We might get the full story then maybe the final time. uh, I'll just say the four because the fifth time is kind of overlap with the fourth name. So, the fourth name is when he had his pilgrimage to uh, Mecca. He became El Haj Malik El Shabazz. He had a lot of travels at that time. So, he was becoming an enlightened person about the rest of the world. Mind you, this is the second time he's been overseas by the time he takes the pilgrimage. Um, So, he's very aware of who's doing what. And he's studying the Islamic faith at a deeper level. And he witnesses the fact that. People of that same faith do not look like him, and they're not all black. And so that, for me, was something that sticks that sticks with me still. Um, and then when he was traveling in in the African countries, uh, one of the delegates renamed him Omawale, uh, and so that's a uh, a Nigerian name, but that's not promoted as much. And I wish that Malcolm X was supported. In that time, as much as any typical celebrity is now, you know, what if we could have that behind the scenes footage of him planning out his travels to all these different countries? And I don't know if that exists, if he journaled some of this. I was told later that the Schomburg Center in New York was given some of the items from the family estate. Uh, And so I I have that on my bucket list to go investigate. (laughs) Um, And I don't know if there's journal entries or photographs from his own camera that he carried around a lot. But in a way, I'm still grateful to know as much as I do.
0: I really like that you highlighted this idea that because he's so well-known, we are more able to see his transformations. I think we all have those kind of experiences, but Malcolm is such a visible figure that seeing those transformations, I think, is so much more potent. To us.
1: Mm, Yeah. Yeah, it's not often that uh, we have the opportunity to know a person, you know, like Malcolm's friends or family members. So, unless you're in the circles, you're only going to get what's revealed to you. And Malcolm, he didn't have to write an autobiography. He didn't, but he chose to. And I'm wondering, you know, outside of his interviews that were recorded and the people that knew him, we wouldn't have gotten. The story about him as Malcolm Little, or the story of him when he was in Boston—that's to me the a level of courage that he took once again, uh, realizing that you know he's a servant of the community, and he his life might change or impact somebody for the for the greater good.
0: Why do you think it is that society at large, and I think what I'm saying by this is in racial terms, why society at large across the Western world has it seems co-opted Martin Luther King Jr and potentially rendered what is a a mighty story to be somewhat anodyne and that hasn't happened to Malcolm X he still provokes i think more divergent views either of fear or pride
1: you know there always has to be a bad guy in this storytelling world that we live in i always wonder who chooses the bad guy right it's the the writer, essentially. And so the writer of American history, in parentheses, <laughs> has always been biased, in my opinion. And this topic comes up a lot, right? And when you get a tour at the Malcolm X Center or a lecture, you do we do talk about that. So I won't spoil that. <laughs> I'll encourage people to schedule a tour. But what frustrates me the most is that There's no evidence put forth as to why one is more devious or violent or more peaceful on the other end than the other. You know, it's just this random thought that has been placed there through propaganda I mentioned before. And I like the word that you use, divergent. Yes, Malcolm X was a divergent human being, but he had reason to be. You know, even the concept of People saying that he was violent without acknowledging the violence that existed from white people. Uh, that's what frustrates me the most. You know, the person that has this idea and then perpetuates it, they forget to put a magnifying glass on their own point of view. There's a, a clip that I saw the other day of Malcolm X talking, and it's the famous speech, uh, Who Taught You to Hate Yourself? And he's at a church or talking to a congregation in L.A. There's a clip at the end where he kind of ends a phrase by saying, you know, they, their house should burn down, too. And that in itself might be alarming to somebody. Well, why would you wish that on somebody? My counter to that is why would someone target black people and burn literally their house down simply because of the color of their skin, Right. So I haven't been challenged yet and maybe it's for a good reason. (laughs) But if I was to have to entertain that question for somebody who wasn't uh, open-minded, that's what I would ask, you know. Well, is it okay for you to threaten the black community and uh, encourage disengagement in such negative ways to encourage trauma? But then when someone over here and the black community calls you out for it, you know, why, why is that a problem?
0: This idea that people cherry-pick what they want to paint Malcolm in a particular way, whether it's about his views on white people, his views on violence or nonviolence, his views on integration or segregation, and in his message to the grassroots speech, mm-hmm. and, and he talks about revolution and what revolution is, he pokes fun at this idea of trying to desegregate so we could have desegregated toilets, so you can sit next to white people in the toilet and and obviously it provokes a laugh. He was a an amazing public speaker mm-hmm. but he also uh, in that speech talks about you don't do any singing, you're too busy swinging, and I feel like it's really easy to pick on moments of Malcolm's life when he was working incredibly hard to engender in black people this idea of pride and self-determination when it's it's only a few years later. I think Message to the Grassroots was maybe the early 60s. Yeah, 63. And it was only 63. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's only a couple of years later that he is in undergoing transformation. Not rejecting mm-hmm. his past beliefs but seeing that there is a way to evolve those mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a way that still celebrates black pride yeah. Yeah. and culture. While also understanding that there is a Bigger world that doesn't have to be exclusionary.
1: Very well said. (laughs) That message uh, to the grassroots, he was talking in Detroit. um, And we actually play that live when people walk in the room for a tour. Uh, We have it on cassette player and vinyl. Uh, A lot of Malcolm's speeches were transferred to those platforms right after he was assassinated. So um, I'm grateful that I was able to hear it that way. Uh, It's different than hearing something on YouTube, by the way, you know. If you can get your hands on a live speech recording and just sit there and listen. So that was one of the first ones that I got to do that with was that grassroots message.
0: I was just reflecting on how people can cherry pick controversial elements to make their own point.
1: Yeah, they do. You know, and sometimes I critique ministers in general when I'm, you know, listening to a sermon or something like that. People cherry pick the Bible, too, you know, or they cherry pick a moment in history to prove a point. Um, but there's always context, right? There's always context. I remember, too, just kind of thinking about all the other uh, civil rights activists at the time who responded to uh, the four little girls who were killed in the church bombing. The media didn't cover that that much. And so when when Black people are justified in our anger, we don't get that sort of coverage Um, So the stuff that people are cherry picking is only what was recorded or documented, you know. So that's why I don't really entertain people who are not open to hearing the full context of a situation.
0: Malcolm X was, and I'm using Malcolm X because I think that's perhaps what he is most well known for as a name across the planet. But you've already mentioned all the other names that he uh, has transformed into over his life. So I hope it's okay that I use Malcolm X.
1: Well, yeah, and I'll, I'll help you even further with that. He said in a speech once, or an interview, I should say, as long as the black people are being terrorized the way that they are, he will continue to use X. To this day, I think he would say the same.
0: Malcolm X has just been inducted into the Nebraska Hall of Fame. I know your foundation played a significant role in that process. Could you just talk a little bit more about the process of the Nebraska Hall of Fame considerations Mm -hmm. and what it means, the organization, and and you personally too that he was selected to be the inductee.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, historically, our organization has only been involved two of the three times that he was nominated. Uh, You have to be Dead for 30 years before you can be a nominee. And then there is a five-year period. So you can only be nominated once in, in that five years. In 2004, there was a group of students from a Job Corps program, I think Shadron, who read his autobiography, felt inspired, reached out to Malcolm X's oldest daughter, Attila, to campaign for Malcolm to be inducted. He was denied that time. Again, we did it a few years later, I think the next cycle, I think 2008, it came down to him and one other person. They chose the other person. And that that second time is when the Malcolm X Foundation nominated him. Again, he was denied. And then this third time around, I submitted a nomination form through encouragement from some mentors. And basically, they were like, try again. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay." You know, so honestly, I filled out the form thinking, okay, yeah, I'll do this thing and then move on to something else. You know, I wasn't really planning for any of the efforts that we're doing right now. I wasn't planning for a just in case he gets in, but uh, I was preparing for him not to be inducted uh, for the simple reason that, you know, Nebraska is still not ready to talk about the racism that happened when he was born. And by mentioning him being born here, you have to talk about that. So I think that that's what people were afraid of for so long. Luckily, he got in.
0: <laughs> so what does this mean then for you and for the foundation that Malcolm X has been recognized by the state in a formal, official capacity? But also I think there's something emotional about what this means for you. And I, I know you don't necessarily want to speak for everybody in the community, but what might this mean for the community at large?
1: First of all, we are finally grateful to have the chance to communicate to the world now. Hey, Malcolm X was born in Omaha. And so that's going to bring a lot more awareness than we've ever been able to cultivate on our own. And it was an emotional day, you know, that they named him because originally it was a four to three vote. And when the chairman, Mr. Hole, made his vote, that made it the fourth one. Uh, that's when they changed it to unanimous. And so for me, I didn't really drop my jaw until it was unanimous, <laughs> you know, because I'm thinking, hey, it's about time. But then I'm thinking, oh, I appreciate the context of, you know, y'all prioritizing him. And of course, the state sets aside process funds, et cetera, for this moment. But the reason why it's the most important is because he's the first black person. To be inducted. And so that's something we're going to be talking about for a long time. There's some other things that are more so thoughts right now than validated on anything else. But I'll at least say that young people who are maybe taking a tour of the state capital or they hear about this news from their teacher or community person, they're going to finally dig deeper into who Malcolm X is, was, and was becoming.
0: Does it make a difference for you that now when you talk about the foundation, you talk about your own commitment to the work you do, but also if you're just out in the world, meaning literally out in the world beyond Nebraska, you are able to say, I come from a state that celebrates Malcolm X. I'm curious how that feels because up till now, you know, we're, we're approaching nearly 100 years since he was born here. Exactly. And so, what does that mean?
1: So, when I traveled before this, it's not uncommon that I was a black person saying I was from Omaha, Nebraska. (laughs) So, people would immediately say, Oh, there's black people in Nebraska? And I'd go, Yes. And Malcolm X was born there. (laughs) And so, Malcolm X's name alone travels everywhere. You could say it and people understand. Right. So, for me, it's like finally I can talk about something else, not something else as far as not Malcolm X, but I can say, yes, Malcolm X was born here and, you know, dot, 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 dot. So I'm excited that that's going to be the conversation now. I still might get asked, you know, are the black people in Omaha? (laughs) And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, actually in the early 1900s, Omaha had the 5% black population, which was high at that time. So anyway, I think, I think I'm excited really just to have that That dialogue. What have been some of the challenges
0: that you've faced in terms of stepping into this role?
1: You know, there's always a challenge when an introvert is asked to do way more than they're used to in regards to uh, speaking to people. You know, I'm I'm a very thought-driven person. When I say that, I mean I think a lot (laughs) about what I'm going to do. You know, I like to plan. I like to organize. I was behind the scenes for a long time. You know, I was writing the press releases and doing the campaigns and organizing the events and working with artists and cultural activists. So, a lot of my work and my legacy is around that organizational leadership aspect. But I also had to embrace the transition. And it became an easier transition when I realized, oh, I've been doing all this work before. So, it's not much different, it's just an added portion that I have to now train myself to do. So I'm thinking more so about along the lines of I can handle it, but it has been a challenge. On top of that, I have a a couple other roles that I have assumed (laughs) since 2020 began. I got married in April of 2020, and uh, it wasn't planned for me to do these other things. Even being the ED wasn't an, an immediate decision. But I had an open heart surgery that was an emergency, just a couple months after I got married. That was a challenge in in when you talk about trusting my body and my mind to move past that. But I, I say I'm a servant a lot because the community stepped up and supported us at that time. I remember looking back at the Facebook posts that my husband made when I had this uh, emergency happen to me. And people were responding to him left and right. And I remember that moment bringing tears to my eyes because I said, if, I, if I've done nothing else, at least I am respected and honored in my community. So I didn't need a title to do to feel that way. I felt like that was important to say just now. But the uh, open heart surgery happened uh, six months later. I got pregnant. <laughs> just a just a little nugget here. You know, I had blood clots that were formed in my body, and I believe it was due to birth control, to be honest. And so when, I, when that happened to me, I decided to no longer be on birth control. And so a baby pops up, <laughs> and she's the joy of my life, you know. And so I became a mother uh, last year. She was born in November. I became the ED in February this year. 2022. Man, time is flying. Uh, So that has been the past two or three years of my life. And it's been a very fast ride, (laughs) to be honest. Yeah, a rewarding ride.
0: What comes next? What are you trying to achieve? What are your aspirations? What do you think that this legacy of Malcolm X could mean for you, for the community, um, and for the foundation? So, why don't we start with what might this mean? For the
1: foundation. I think this means uh, that we have uh, an opportunity to look back at other people like myself who were either curious about what to do next or maybe already identified some things that they are great at and helping to cultivate leadership in the next generation. That is really what's next. You know, I don't know if other people have had the experiences that I've had. But I do know that the only reason I am still here is because other people reached out and you know took me under their wing. so if I don't do the same thing, I'm not doing my job as a community servant and the executive director has a list of expectations that come with that role and title, but first and foremost, the level of leadership that comes with this role is what I'm taking the most seriously, and leadership in the community more so than just leadership in the organization.
0: I'm really mindful that Malcolm X remains relevant today. And I'm again wondering, what do you, what do you think are your hopes for the community as, as you push forward with the work of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation?
1: I'm really hoping for a, a Black Unified Front in regards to us being gratified with our efforts to work collectively and I'm really hoping for more encouragement within our own institutions, because if that doesn't happen, then it'll be harder to do anything else. I'm not a pop culture fan in totality. So if you ask me who did what on whatever news station, I won't know. I'll wait for my husband to tell me because he's in that world. But just as much as that is given attention, you know, what happened at some Super Bowl performance or something like that, we should give just as much attention to how we're educating the next generation about their own identities. Because Malcolm had that uh, leverage to constantly seek and dive deeper. And so that's what I'm hoping would be a encouraged priority for this next chapter.
0: And what are you hoping for yourself? What's next for you, do you think, as you keep pursuing not only this professional role, but all of the work you do in and for community?
1: Honestly, I'm looking forward to just going back to being a student all over again (laughs) because there's so much to learn. I'm looking forward to meeting certain people who might be at a place in their lives that I can learn from. You know, I have a, a few mentors in my life and I respect the level of transparency that they've given me. And uh, I look forward to being in in a similar situation that Malcolm X was in, where he had the opportunity to meet other influential delegates from different countries even. And at that time, they were his peers at the same time. So, you know, they don't have to be older than me, but I am looking forward to being in a room one day where I can feel inspired by the next person sitting next to me
0: wow, what a responsibility. I'm thinking, (laughs) you know, here you are, you're the executive director of of not only this organization, but also this place. Uh He was born here in Omaha, and that place is marked. And it's being increasingly recognized and celebrated. So in some ways, I just have this picture in my head of you as this banner carrier, Malcolm X's legacy, which feels like an amazing honor, but also a heavy burden.
1: Well, it's funny that you say burden because after my heart surgery, which I believe not just blood clots led to, but carrying a load that was unwarranted to some extent of the black community. And so I am no longer carrying extra bags, if you catch my drift. However, I am a self care proponent, um, in that in that same regard. And so I don't label it as a burden, but I do label it as a challenge to help redirect the trauma that we all have experienced as black people into the uh, resilience that I was taught that we all had innately in us. So for me, I'm I'm excited more so about uh, encouraging that belief. It could be a burden, you know, it could be if I allow it to be. But. Just as much as I was learning about the Harlem Renaissance, I was also learning about the trauma. You know, I I told you I watched Roots, which is so dramatic, so dramatic. But then later in life, I learned about the African kingdoms that existed prior to that. So I mentioned that before in our interview. You know, there's, there's a tragic story, but then there's a celebratory story of the Black experience. I more so will hold the banner part of that, you know. And if my colleagues are focused on the trauma, I will kindly remind them that they have some resiliency that they can celebrate at the same time.
0: I'm just wondering if for you, there is something that springs to your mind from Malcolm's life that gives you that, as it were, emotional and mental sustenance. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I'd say more so that there was something that Malcolm did regularly that I've learned to apply to my own life, which is that he got grounded very frequently. His moment of quiet time, his moment of resolve and being alone and getting grounded and meditating is something that I have adopted for myself. And you don't have to be a follower of said religion to do this. And so I think that that's really the thing that sticks out the most for me. Um, I can imagine what he might have been dealing with and getting phone call threats and trying to have meetings with said politicians and Getting nowhere with the organizers or, you know, all the things at once, right? And then he has to write a speech for some hundreds of people he has to talk to the next day. Um, And I would imagine that is the primary thing that kept him going uh, was getting grounded, you know, having some sort of spiritual practice or element of your life that realigns you and recalibrates you when you're dealing with so much. So that is a work in progress. So, you know, it's not like you just figure out a formula one day you can tap into it whenever you need to. But at the same time, meditation is a very simple thing that you can tap into when you need it. <laughs> so that's for me what it is, you know. And and it's not always, you know, being in a dark corner of a room and, you know, closing your eyes. Sometimes it's taking a walk as a meditation. Sometimes it's being creative. Um sometimes it's serving and uh If I need to tap in and get grounded, that's, those are some of the things that I would do.
0: I I am sure that when you wake up in the morning, you have many other things on your mind, not least your daughter and so on and so forth. That being said, when you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, I am the executive director of the Malcolm X Foundation. How do you feel?
1: So, as you said, I have other thoughts that happen. (laughs) But when I'm reminded of my duty at this moment in life, I just take it in strides. I think I can't let uh, a small problem weigh on me too long. Um, I'm very adamant about how my time is spent. And uh, my Google Calendar is interestingly color coded. (laughs) So, you know, I I probably think about maybe the things I have to do, um, but I'm thinking about the end result. If I do these things today, then it'll lead to. More fluidity of the work that I have to do later, and it's also not just the work that I have to do. you know a lot of this work that I'm doing now is organizational structure and leadership capacity that I'm trying to build with the organization so that there are more people involved in the work. Um, this is not a an effort that should be done like alone <laughs>
0: My guest today has been Joanna LaFleur Ajiki, Executive Director of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation Joanna thank you so much for being on the show Oh
1: it was my pleasure, thank you
0: Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.